interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Before we read the scripture together, I want to take a moment to introduce our speaker. Uh, Those of you who have been participating in the Institute for Biblical Studies uh, this weekend have already been introduced to him, Uh, but uh, our speaker this morning is Dr. Skip Ryan. Uh, Skip has been uh, pastor for many years of uh, of his ministry. He was pastor of Uh, Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, for about 17 years. And while he was there, uh, the Christian Studies Center at the University of Virginia was launched. You may remember uh, Drew Trotter, who was our IBS speaker a couple of years ago. Drew was the longtime director who came in under Skip's uh, Skip's tenure there. Uh, And uh, the Study Center has been very significant to our ministry here in Ithaca because it has had a Uh, a a very encouraging influence on the development of Chesterton House and uh, Carl's uh, work as the director of Chesterton House. Uh, Skip also was for quite a few years the pastor of Park City's Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. Uh, He's now the chancellor of uh, Redeemer Seminary uh, in Dallas and uh, professor of practical theology there. Skip is uh, someone who is a, a colleague of mine in the denomination in which I serve, the Presbyterian Church in America, and he's someone I have greatly appreciated for many years. Uh, His uh, humility and his wisdom uh, have been uh, part of the real guiding influence of our fellowship of churches uh, that has served to keep our focus where it needs to be on Christ and on the gospel. And uh, so, Skip, I'm very grateful for your influence and your ministry to us, not only this weekend, but much more broadly. Skip is going to be speaking to us to conclude uh, our weekend from John chapter 14. And let's stand together for the reading of God's word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, Good morning. It is, uh, it's really been a great uh, delight to be with you in uh, Ithaca uh, this uh, weekend. Um, you, if you're uh, sort of a f- person who likes to watch the weather uh, developments around the country, 
you will know that uh, we had a little problem in Dallas um, this last few days. Um, there was a record snowfall, um, 14 inches in some places, uh, a foot in others, and uh, we just don't do that very well in Dallas um, and don't know exactly how to handle that. And so my dear friends and, and brothers, uh, Dave and Steve uh, and Carl, too, uh, from Chesterton House, were quite concerned that I'd be able to get here and fearing that the weather would be bad in Detroit where I was connecting or in Ithaca, they asked if I would come on Thursday um, just to make sure I could be here by Friday. And I attempted to do that, but the problem wasn't here. The problem was in Dallas. And uh, um, so anyway, I kind of got here at the last minute, uh, but that's good. And I'm really glad to be here. It's been great to be with you uh, for the weekend and to be a part of this great conference. Uh, it's been really a delight to see the friendship between your two pastors. Um, we all had dinner together with their wives. My wife is, is at home, but um, we had dinner together last night and um, just to see the, their commitment to one another and to the, to the love, the bond of love that they have in Christ. Um, that makes a huge difference. It's a, it's a very, very significant part of the witness, I would suggest, of of Bethel Grove and New Life together in this community. And please don't ever underestimate the significance of churches working together and praying together and and being the body of Christ uh, together. In another part of the so-called farewell discourses, which um, Steve just read from uh, a few moments ago, uh, Jesus pleads that we would bear forth to the world the unity that he has with the Father. Isn't that interesting? He says, this is the way that the world will know that the Father has sent me by the way you love one another. It's very remarkable. And what you're doing here then is really a demonstration of the gospel's truth by coming together for services like this and in other ways throughout the year. So I commend you for that. It does not happen, believe me, in uh, as many places as you might think. So um, press on with that that great... uh, that great calling, you might say, that you have in your two churches. Well, you will notice from what Steve read, I think that the emphasis uh, is upon um, the notion of an orphan. And uh, I really appreciated your, your comments in your, when you were introducing your song. It's all right. Don't let me keep you up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just caught her in a yawn. It was really great. <laughs> it's just the kind of thing you want to do, you know, just... Catch them right in the middle of the yawn. Um, but uh, I really appreciated your thoughts about the song that you sang and uh, that we, you taught us together. And, um, yeah, the question you see, I, I, I would venture to say, is what does an orphan need to know? You know, we are all orphaned, I would suggest to you, in one of three ways. Some are literally orphaned. Do you know that there are 140 million orphans in the world today, as we speak? 140 million. We know, of course, just recently of what has happened in Haiti. 200,000 or more have lost their lives, and no doubt that has left many, many orphaned. In Uganda, the country that Bethel Grove has a strong relationship with, they have developed a medical protocol that is now being implemented in some of the places, even some of the remote places in Uganda. This is a protocol to prevent HIV-positive mothers, that is, mothers who have AIDS, 
and have gotten AIDS not, as it were, by their own fault, but through their husbands or whatever. And um, this protocol keeps the virus from being transmitted to their infant babies by a very, very uh, committed regimen of diet, medicine, and uh, very strict kind of uh, requirements on breastfeeding uh, early in the child's life. And they have managed with this protocol to cut down by 75 to 80% the number of babies that die from the AIDS virus, which is uh, otherwise transmitted to them from their mothers. Um, and this is really remarkable. My wife and I were there about 15 months ago, spent five weeks in a very remote part of Uganda where we worked with some of these doctors um, who were um, working in this protocol, seeing up to 500 uh, mothers a week coming through their clinic. And we would pray, Barbara and I would pray with some of the, the mothers. And invariably, we would say, what is it that we can pray for? And without fail... All of them. I, don't, I can't think of a single one who said anything other than this. Pray for my baby because in eight or nine or ten months, my baby will be an orphan. Because the mothers knew they were going to die. And they were very concerned about their orphan uh, babies. So some people in this world are orphaned literally. And I would imagine in a room like this, uh, this morning, they're are probably at least uh, one or two or a few of you who, in fact, uh, began your life in, in uh, some state of, of being an orphan, literally. Now, secondly, though, most of us are orphaned. Most people are orphaned in one way or another because our parents were not perfect. I know this is a shock to you who are young mothers um, uh, and uh, young dads here, but y- you are wonderful parents, but you are not perfect parents. And none of us ever received perfect parenting. And as a result, there's a certain kind of way in which we can speak of our being orphaned. The sense that we didn't get all that we needed as a child. And, and, and our parents, in their imperfection, transmitted some of their imperfections to us. And so it um, goes. There's a third kind of orphan, though. And this is uh, probably nowhere near as many uh, as the first two categories, but nevertheless, a very, very important one to understand. These are those of us who have been orphaned because of life's devastations. We have been made to feel utterly alone, even desolate. Desolate is a good way to put it. Desolation is the same word in the original language in which the New Testament was written as the word orphan. And in fact, in some English translations, the word orphan here is translated desolate. I will not leave you desolate, that those translations say. While there's a degree of devastation um, that maybe all of us have experienced in our lives in one way or another, there is certainly uh, an intense form of it that it appears that some people, for whatever combination of reasons, experience. Um, perhaps it does have to do with uh, our upbringing. Perhaps it has to do with the, the traumas of warfare or the difficulties of uh, early childhood illness or, of course, abuse in the home is one of the most devastating ways in which orphans are actually 
created. When a person has experienced such devastation, often the questions come from them in their adult lives. Questions like this. Where was God when X happened to me? Or uh, like this. Where, um, where is God when we look at all the evil that's in the world? Doesn't it seem as if God has left the phone off the hook? Or a, another question may be, am I not in the end, really, in this life, existentially, utterly alone? I've enjoyed being a little bit on the campus of Cornell this weekend, and some of you are Cornell students I know or faculty. There is something about a university that while it's the greatest thing that the Westerns, our Western civilization can produce in some ways, it is also a place that is hard. It's, it's a place where people do often feel very, very much alone. And for some Christians, not all, of course, but for some, there can also be a kind of searing pain that tells them that life has become a desolation. That, in a sense, they want to say, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I didn't think my life was going to turn out this way. I didn't think that in my 30s or 40s or 50s or even later, I was going to have to face the kind of pain and hurt in this particular area of my life that I do. Well, the question then really becomes for these people even more than for others, what does an orphan need to know? I think Jesus understands that this is a fair question. Uh, given what he has begun to tell the apostles here in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, he's telling them that he is going away. He began this part of his teaching, what is called the farewell discourses, by saying this at the start of, of John 14. He says, Let your hearts not be troubled. I am going away to prepare a place for you. But perhaps he sees that this encouragement of preparing a place is not enough. Perhaps it's a little bit like when someone close to us dies and a friend comes and seeks to help us and says, well, he has gone to a better place. Well, that's great. I'm glad he's gone to a better place. But what about me? I'm still here. And I'm left with the devastation or the desolation of just being alone without this person that I loved. And so I think Jesus moves on to address the deepest fears. I will not leave you desolate. I will not leave you orphaned. I will not leave you in this particular trauma or difficulty which seems to have no other answer but hurt. And whether you would say that the hurt in your life is of this devastating and overwhelming nature or whether you would just say that you're more or less a normal person who has been beaten up by life here and there, and often does feel quite alone, I think that Jesus wants us to ask the question, what does an orphan need to know? And Jesus' answer is simply this, I will come to you. Here, in John 14, he does not say that we will go to him. He says that in other places, of course, but here the emphasis is not on our going to him, but his coming to us. In verse 16, Jesus says, there is a counselor, a friend, a comforter, an advocate, 
And depending upon the translation, you'll see one of these words. That's because the word that is there is actually a word that can be translated in all of those ways. Friend, comforter, counselor, advocate. And this one the Father will send us who will be with us forever. This is a huge promise. It really is a huge promise. Please, Jesus, we want to say, don't say such things if they're merely kind words. Again, it's like when someone says to us when we've been left desolate by a loss, you will see her again. We're often not quite as sure that these words are as comforting as the person means them to be. It's a huge promise. I will come to you. I will not leave you orphaned. I will send another one. I will send a counselor, an advocate, a friend, a helper to you. The promise is huge. Jesus says the Father will give us another. It's an interesting word. What can that mean? I wish actually that our English translations would capitalize the A on another so that we would understand that Jesus means we will be given another divine person, another counselor, another friend, another advocate. What are these things? These are all the things that Jesus was to his apostles and all the things that we want Jesus to be to us. You know the original word here is the word paraclete. You've perhaps heard of that. It's, uh, it, it is various, truly translated helper, counselor, friend, and so forth. Para means alongside, doesn't it? Like parallel. And the idea here is that an orphan needs to know that he or she has been paracletized. In other words, that there is alongside of me another one who is a counselor, friend, comforter, and advocate. Please, Jesus isn't just uh, saying something here that's a bit of a metaphor, extended metaphor. He is speaking of of a reality that there is actually going to be a person, a divine person who represents him, who comes to us and is with us. Of course, orphans, real orphans, ones who are literally been orphaned, are often suspicious, aren't they? They don't, they, they're weary of people that promise them too much. They've been hurt and they need some kind of reassurance about who this another one is. And so the Lord specifies. He says that the paraclete is the spirit of truth. Now, the spirit of truth is not one who tells me the facts of truth as much as he is one who tells me the meaning of the truth. In other words, The spirit of truth is not a celestial encyclopedia. The spirit of truth is not a a website, heaven.com. The spirit of truth is not a set of facts or answers. The spirit of truth is a person, a very wise person. And, And truth really is like wisdom. I went to, um, uh, another Ivy League uh, college um, in Cambridge, and uh, I went through a, a gate every day on my way to classes. Every day for four years, I went through the same gate, and over the gate was these words, enter these gates and grow in wisdom. And I thought, day after day, am I growing in wisdom? And every day I said, no. 
I may be growing in knowledge, but I'm not growing in wisdom very much. Why do I say that? Because wisdom is what happens to you when truth or knowledge gets pushed down into our being like a French press coffee pot, if you've ever seen one of those. Push it down into our very souls. That's wisdom. A truthful spirit is one who tells us the truth, just as Jesus told us the truth by coming to us personally. In my Father's house, he says, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. That's a very interesting thing for Jesus to say. Why does he say that? In my Father's house, there are many rooms. Okay, get that part. There's room for you and me and all of us. But if it were not so, I would have told you. In other words... Jesus would not lie. He would have told us if it wasn't the truth. He would have told us if there was no real promise. He would have told us if there was no real help. He would have told us if there's no real comforter or friend who's going to come. He does not lie. And so his spirit of truth will not mislead us. And what does this spirit of truth say? He says what every orphan needs to know. Not only the truth that he will not leave us alone or desolate, but the truth that he will come to us. He will be alongside of us. He will be with us. In fact, he will be in us. For you know him, Jesus says, for he lives with you and will be in you. Please note those words, with and in. It has been said that theology is written and understood in the prepositions. With you. Jesus says, I, through the Spirit of truth, will be with you. I, through the Spirit of truth, will be in you. How, cl- how much closer can he be? I actually think you have to call this the theology of intimacy. Really, you might say the theology of holy intimacy. Jesus says, on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. What is this? It's the theology of holy intimacy between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and us. When Jesus says he is with us and in us, It is really only understood when we see this withness and this inness as reflective of the withness and the inness that God the Father has with his own Son. That's what Jesus is saying. That's how close he comes to us. And the best way to understand that, namely that Jesus is with us and is in us, is to see that our oneness with him is taken up into the oneness that Jesus has with his Father. What does an orphan need to know? That God, the eternal three in one, has communion with himself. That God, if I can put it to you this way, has not left himself orphaned. That's what we need to know. That the persons of the Trinity talk with each other, that they love being together, that they are to each other counselors, friends, comforters, and advocates. Imagine this. Really. 
the three persons of the eternal trinity comfort one another, talk to one another, counsel one another, whatever that would mean. Be present for one another. Orphans do not simply need to know that they belong and that they are loved. They need to know that they are caught up into eternal belonging and eternal loving. That's what we need to know. The very life of the Holy Trinity is the source of our new life in Christ. In other words, the new life with which you and I live is not new. It's been around for eternity. It is the life and the love with which God has related to himself forever in the three distinct persons of the Trinity. And what he does in saving us, redeeming us, in sending his Holy Spirit to us, what God does is he catches us up in that eternal relationship, that that eternal community. And all this is possible, you see, for one main reason, that Jesus was orphaned, that Jesus was desolate on the cross, where eternal belonging and love that he had always known with the Father was in one horrible moment gone. You must see the cross as the division and separation of God the Father from God the Son, something which had never, ever happened and in some ways was unthinkable that it ever could. Unless you think that that, uh, belonging and love weren't really gone because Jesus knew that they would shortly be restored in his resurrection, please remember this. There is nothing in our scriptures to tell us that Jesus knew anything else but that on the cross he had been orphaned by his Father forever. In this moment of desolation, he had no reason to think otherwise. That eternal witness and belonging and love, holy intimacy were unthinkably smashed by the hammer that drove nails into Jesus' hands. Now, we can't get too speculative and go beyond what Scripture says. But how long was Jesus in hell? Our creed, the one we said this morning, says that Jesus descended into hell. How long was he there? Well, we say, well, from about 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon until dawn on Sunday morning. But wait a minute. What if to the Lord a thousand years is like one day? How long was he there? Again, we can't speculate, but it might have been a long, long, long time in the reckoning of time as God the Father reckoned it. An orphan must know that Jesus was the most orphaned person who has ever lived. And if you know that, it is the beginning place for understanding how the desolation of orphaned, being an orphan uh, can be lifted from us. All of the pain, my dear friends, that we experience in our lives, all of the heartache, all of the loss, all of the rightful reasons for mourning, that life hasn't turned out exactly like you'd hoped it. All of those things 
must can be understood and the pain can be greatly diminished by looking at the eternal orphaned condition of Jesus. You've been brought into the family of the Trinity, into this holy intimacy, into this loving communion. Think of the word communion itself. It's the opposite of being orphaned, of being alone. Common union, communion. Now one last thing, and then I'm done. One last thing an orphan needs to know. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Every orphan must know that the measure of how much we obey the commands of Jesus is the measure to which we experience the love of the Father and the love of Jesus himself. The measure by which we obey the commands of Jesus becomes the measurement by which we know this eternal love. Now, now I'm not saying we obey the commands of the Lord in order to know God or Christ. I am saying that the measure of the experiential reality that we have of this love and grace that has been going on for all eternity is dependent upon the degree to which we earnestly pursue in obedience the commands of Jesus. And what is the center of all of those commands? Jesus says it three times in these farewell discourses that we love one another. That is absolutely staggering when you put it in the context of what we're saying here. What is the one thing that orphans long for and don't have? Love. And what is it, therefore, Jesus is commanding all of us who see ourselves as orphans in one way or another that we give away what we do not have? How can that be? How can you give away what you don't have? The answer, of course, is by realizing how much you are loved by Jesus, your Savior, and by God, His Father, and your Father. When we live in His love, we give love. I used this illustration earlier in the weekend, so forgive me if you've heard it, but Mother Teresa in Calcutta, there's a brother order to the Sisters of Charity there, and there was this monk in this brother order who was very troubled. He had so much to do. He had lots of problems, and his superior was giving him all kinds of difficulties, and he went to talk to Mother Teresa, and he said, Mother, I've just got all these difficulties and problems, and I can't get my work done, and on and on. And Mother Teresa stopped him and said, Brother, what is your calling? And he said, Well, my calling is to care for the poor. And she said, Oh, no, your calling is not to care for the poor. Your calling is to know how much Jesus has loved you and then to love others with the overflow of that love. I really like that, my friends. 
in my own life, I have seen that that really is the center. I have really seen that love does make the world go round. Because that love has been there forever between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now, amazingly enough, is shared with us. When Jesus comes alongside us, when he's with us, when he's in us to give us his life, we will obey and we will love others with the love he has given us. It is not our love with which we love them. It is his. It, we, are, we are transmitting a love we have received. If you try and love people on your own steam, you will fail. You'll wear out. You'll get resentful. You'll get bitter. It doesn't work. It's only when we live in the love that we've been given as orphans adopted by our Heavenly Father through the work of Jesus that we begin to understand what it means to love one another. Brethren, love one another, John said, for love is from God. He who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God because God is love. By this, by this, the love of God has been manifested to us that God sent His only Son into the world that we should live through Him. In this is the love of God made manifest. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. If God so loved us, so ought we to love one another. No man has ever seen God. But he who loves abides in God and God's love is perfected in him. Isn't that what we want, orphans? Isn't that what every orphan wants to know? That God's love is perfected in us? That's what I need to know. That God's eternal purpose is that because Jesus is with me, His love, His Father's love, their love for each other, the love of Jesus that the Holy Spirit brings, that this love is with me and in me, and it will come through me to others because Jesus will come through me to you. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.